You are listening to audio from Hope Church Ipswich. For more information about our church, please visit www.hopechurchipswich.net. Well, good morning. As Matt mentioned, we're going to continue. We're finally getting back into our series in 1 Corinthians. So, we might need a tiny recap of of, uh, the setting, setting the scene. Corinth is a big economic city. Uh, It's where Paul started a church. In Acts 18, you can read about the church he started there. We brought people to faith in Jesus, and there was a small community that is now a church in Corinth that he's writing to. He wants to see the brothers and sisters that he has made there uh, growing in maturity in Christ, Uh, but he's heard that some of the community is plagued by problems, all sorts of problems, and he's writing this letter to help them. So that's the scene that we are coming to here. Um, the problems that he hears about and is writing about vary from divisions among them, uh, misuse of sex, misunderstandings around food, and a correct behavior in church gatherings. He always responds to every problem with the gospel, with the good news of what Jesus has done and who Jesus is. He doesn't respond with uh, ethics. He doesn't use ethics. He doesn't use Uh, standards of righteousness or comparison to other people to inform their lives. No, he always brings it back to the gospel, who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, and what it is to be a loved believer of Jesus. And I use the phrase loved believer on purpose. The fact that we are so fully and overwhelmingly loved by God to the extent that he would send his son and he would come in human flesh and die for us That really informs our heart's response to him and and what he calls us to. If you say you believe in this Jesus and have given your life over to him, it's not just that he's your saviour, it's also that you say, no, you're my saviour and you're my Lord. I follow you, I, I, I bow the knee before you, I trust you, and it will impact every area of your life. Central to Paul's arguments and teaching is the theme of love. Self-denying love that looks out for others. Christ-like love. This informs all of Paul's teaching. In fact, near the end of this letter, in chapter 13, one of the most famous uh, passages of Scripture, especially at weddings, Paul says that uh, you may be very impressive, you may be able to say very impressive things and know very impressive things, but without love, it's just noise. So everything Paul teaches, he's teaching... In love, he's trying to remind them, Jesus loves you, therefore, trust him, therefore, respond in these ways. And as we've seen already, gospel counsel is usually pretty countercultural and often very counterintuitive. It's not the way we would have dreamt things up. It's not the way we would have done things often, but that's, that's why we need teaching, because God has, uh, has written his law on our hearts. We need to understand what that, how to work that out, how to walk that out. As believers in, in Jesus. It's easy for us to think that the gospel's countercultural nature is largely because, well, we've moved on from, from this. We've moved on from this. This is, this is primitive. We've, we've evolved. We're not as primitive as they were back then, but it's clear that Paul was well aware, even in this letter that we're reading, that uh, a lot of what he was teaching would, suit, would sound foolish to people who hadn't encountered Jesus. So actually, it's not a new thing that it's countercultural. It was countercultural then. We know this even, in, again, in this letter, in the first three chapters, Paul 
mentions this. Uh, We've got a slide for this one. In chapter 1, he says, For the foolishness of God is wiser than men. Remember that one? And the weakness of God is stronger than men. He's he's anticipating people will think, this sounds foolish. No, no, the foolishness of God is wiser than men. Chapter 2, he says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? And chapter 3, he said, For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So Paul knows full well that without trusting God, we will find God's wisdom very hard to comprehend. He knows it's countercultural. He's not, it's not like in those days, oh, these people fell for it, hook, line, and sinker. They probably all would have just believed whatever he said. No, he's teaching that this is going to sound foolish. But the foolishness of, of, of man is exposed by God's wisdom. And the foolishness of, of God, if, if that exists at all, um, which it doesn't, is, wi- is wiser than men. He's saying, you know, the, the, I don't even understand this verse to be honest but because how can God be foolish but you know if, if there were a, a low end to God's wisdom even that would far outdo man's wisdom so we go into this this chapter and the reason I'm giving this backdrop is because the passage I've got today is is quite well known as probably the most perplexing passage in the whole of the Bible so so we're going to go through it quite quite uh, carefully and uh, and I'm going to pray before I start, before I read it even. Father, we just thank you that we're able to sing and, uh, and enjoy your presence and sing about what you've done for us and let it minister to our hearts. We thank you that there's such a peace in us uh, because of what Christ has done. We thank you that we're at peace with God. We know our eternity is, is secure. We know our uh, destiny is in you. We know our identity is in you. We know we don't have to strive to find life because life came to us. Lord, we thank you so much that when we sing, it just warms our hearts. It reminds us of who we are. I do pray that you would counsel us by your Holy Spirit as we read, as we listen, that we would listen with humility, that we'd be open to your ways, that we'd be open to what those three passages just said, that your ways are higher. You know what you're doing. You're to be trusted. We thank you. There's so much reason to trust you. Because you gave your life for us. You're not trying to trick us. So I pray, bless us as we hear. And let this morning honor you and honor Jesus. And help us to know him more in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, I'm going to go for it and read from uh, 1 Corinthians 11, uh, verses 2 to 16. And you may as well just keep it open there. Uh, throughout the morning it says this this is Paul again to the Corinthians now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ and the head of a wife is her husband and the head of Christ is God every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the the same as if her head were shaven. 
For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and the glory of God. But a woman, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. It is, is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that a man wears long hair? If a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him. But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Wow. (laughs) What on earth is going on here? This is interesting and very perplexing. What is going on here? First, we might ask the question, why is, this, why is Paul even talking and bringing up this subject, this topic with them? Well, verse 2 tells us that Paul praises the Corinthian church uh, for holding on to his teachings. As he begins, I, I praise you, I, I commend you because you remember everything I taught you, you maintain the things I taught you. And then the beginning of verse 3 says, but I want you to understand, and then he goes on to teach more So it seems like he's saying, well done in the things you've remembered and the things you've understood and the things you've kept to, but there are some things that I need to help you with. There are some things that you haven't. So it seems that Paul is wanting to bring some correction to a misunderstanding or to possibly to a rebellion against God's intent for them. Before we go into the content and the specifics of Paul's seemingly bizarre teaching, it's important to think about how do we read and apply the Bible? particularly when it comes to tricky, countercultural, and counterintuitive teaching. Because there are two possible ways that we could respond. First is that we, we say, I believe the Bible to be God's word, and so I do exactly what it says, no matter how it connects with the culture around me. Because I believe God's word, right? It's his word. And I want to hold on to it tightly, and, and, it, and I honor it. And so I, I want to do what it says, without thinking, does it connect with the culture around me? Well, that is a a beautiful heart. It reveals a heart of trust and a heart of humility. It's an attitude that holds a high view of Scripture. And I've heard in a number of cases, including at this church, um, women coming to the leaders after reading this passage and saying, I think, shouldn't I be wearing a head veil? Shouldn't I be covering my head when when I pray or when I come to prophesy? And that is a wonderful sign. It's a wonderful example of humility and a desire for, of a woman that is, knows I'm loved by this God. He says, do this. Shouldn't I be doing this? It's a beautiful attitude to have. If we believe in a God who's loved us enough to die for us and we've given our lives to him, our heart's desire should be to obey him. So it's absolutely right when coming to God's word to hold to a principle of obedience. If I'm a believer in this Jesus and I want to follow him, then by principle I come to this thing wanting to do what it says. Come to his word wanting to obey, wanting to know what is your will. 
What is your will? What, how would you have me live? Your, your ways are higher than mine. You're so much more wise than me. And I know you want to love me. So teach me. Tell me. That, that is a good heart to have. The other way we could respond is to think it sounds odd and out of touch. And we say, well, the gospel's about grace, right? And uh, so we pass off things that sound unappealing as being legalistic. I don't really like the sound of that. Let's put that in the category legalistic. We know that there are some things that were written for then, but not for now. So at one point in Timothy, Paul says, Timothy, bring me my parchments. Now, when I read the Bible, I don't have to then think, I've got to go and find some parchments now and bring them to a man called Paul. No, that was written for then. That's not for now. We know uh, there are things that are cultural and only applied to then. So we can just ignore them, right? We can just say, well, that doesn't apply to us now. We just move on. And isn't this one of those occasions? This is quite a common response. It makes things much easier. Well, that was probably cultural. We can just ignore that. But it's not that simple. It amounts really to what the third American president did. Thomas Jefferson, you know, may know, he famously, he got a sharp knife, he went to his Bible, and he cut out the parts of the Bible that he liked, and he made his own Bible, called the Jefferson Bible. And uh, you could say that he made a God in his own image, rather than believing God is sufficient as he is already. Because when you throw away God's word, you start to make your own definition of God. I didn't like everything I found in here, so I, I pick and choose what I want. And we make our own Jefferson Bible, as it were. As Bible teacher Andrew Wilson says, we can't simply say some bits of the Bible are timeless and need to be obeyed, and some bits are cultural and don't. The whole Bible is timeless. It's God-breathed, and it's useful for teaching, even the bits about head coverings. And the whole Bible is also culturally conditioned and anchored in a particular time and place, even the doctrines of salvation. Splitting them into two distinct categories is impossible. So we can't just write off God's word in places where they seem out of touch with our culture. If, if you feel uh, you, you are unsure it's much more honouring and much more safe to obey a New Testament command where you feel convicted, I need to obey that. So actually, if I were to explain what I'm going to explain today to a woman that came to me and said, I feel I should be wearing a head covering, and I were to say, let me just walk you through, I'm going to walk you through today, I don't think it's necessary, that's where we're going to go. And she said, look, it says it in the Word, I still feel, I feel convicted, I would say, bless you. Because that is such a more honouring and God-fearing way to read the Bible. I'm not going to tell someone, well, you're, you know, she feels like her conviction is, well, God says this to me, I don't want to disobey. That is a good way. But there is a problem with just doing exactly what it says in every situation. That problem is not that the teaching is silly, or that the teaching is wrong, or that the teaching is too heavy. Okay. The problem is that there are customs and symbols that don't hold the same meanings within our culture, but the principle behind the teaching can be translated and cherished. So I don't do exactly the same thing, but what's behind that? Because I want to trust this God. I want to live the way he's called me to live. I want to know what, what's the principle behind it. We don't ditch it. We look at the symbol and we see what there's the principle behind it. 
If the, the principle, sorry, if the symbol has been translated differently from the ancient world to the modern world, we do the same without losing the biblical principle behind the symbol. For example, Jesus washed his disciples' feet and told them to do the same. We don't go around washing people's feet today. Because it's not done, it wouldn't actually bless people in the way it would have done then. If they came to our house and we started washing their feet, they would more likely leave than feel blessed. But it does have a principle behind it, doesn't it? A beautiful one that we do want to emulate and we do want to follow. In this instance, we, we love people by becoming servants to them. We love people selflessly. and That's a very simple way of putting it. But there's still a principle, isn't there, that we follow. Uh, what about the example where, where we're told to greet each other with a holy kiss? We don't tend to do that. Um, perhaps we, I, I do kiss some of the, the older ladies here as I would do to my, my mum or my sister when I greet them but we're much more a reserved culture and so to the men I would not give them a kiss I would give them a hug or I would shake their hand because I don't want to just say well we're a reserved culture so let's be reserved I don't want to emulate the culture I still want the principle of well I'm supposed to subvert a, a sinful culture and come and bring love and affection but it would not help in our culture to kiss them. In France, yes, people may be, people do do that at church. They greet each other with a kiss. So you understand how there are symbols that translate, but the principle behind them is something to be cherished. So in this passage, what are the symbols? What are the customs that need to be translated? And what are the principles represented that we should hold on to? Well, the symbols are men and women's heads. What does that mean? Long hair and short hair. What are the significances of those? Or coverings. We don't, you know, what does this mean? So there's a lot of confusion that comes for us because none of these things are considerably significant in our culture. Although you could see a general stereotype that women tend to have longer hair than men. But Paul seems to attach this glory and shame in ways that we would find quite unusual. Even the commentators I've heard and read this week, the last few weeks about this, they differ a lot on their interpretations. But there are some significant things that they tend to agree on. The first two we can look at together because they really carry a lot of the teaching of the chapter. Number one would be, in the church, gender distinctions were to be preserved and honoured with men looking like men and women looking like women. Number two would be men honoured Christ in his authoritative position and women honoured the husbands and elders in theirs. In the time and place Paul was writing, a man would not wear a head covering or have long hair precisely because that was what women would wear. A woman, sorry, women. A woman would not have short hair or even have her head uncovered because that would look masculine. Now that's not the case today, but Paul was teaching that God created gender to be gloried in for beauty and diversity. God has created women to be honoured and upheld as women with feminine traits and men to be honoured and upheld as men with masculine traits. In a time when gender is seen as a fluid thing, I mean, yeah, we could talk about that for a long time, but we're not going to. A thing you can choose, a thing you can change, this teaching cuts through that with helpful clarity 
and brings honour to God and honour to both genders. We, can live in a, we live in a quagmire of confusion around this at the moment. But God is clear. Male and female, he created them and he blessed them. Masculinity in men is to be honoured and upheld by men and women. And femininity in women is to be honoured and upheld by men and women. Now that shouldn't be controversial. But for some reason it is. Men being men, women being women. It shouldn't be controversial. We've got to this point where it is. Our culture is, is weary of masculinity and perhaps for good reason. Because it's often twisted, misrepresented, abused in sinful ways. Godly masculinity, however, is protective. It courageously lays its life down for others. It is strong. It takes responsibility rather than running away. It is willing to be on the front line. These are Christ-like qualities, and we shouldn't be ashamed of them. Going quiet in here now. Nor should they be perverted or twisted into something ungodly. Godly masculinity will also uphold, inspire, and promote women to be who they are called to be. The genders behaving as they should do uphold each other and encourage each other. Men, God has made women to be women and men to be men. And when we rebel against this, we undermine God's glorious and beautiful design and it does have a huge impact. I read a heartbreaking article yesterday where a woman met another woman on an aeroplane. She sat down next to a businesswoman and, uh, and uh, this woman was dressed up like almost in a power suit, very, uh, I don't know what to say, she was dressed up like a businesswoman. And uh, this woman she sat next to uh, was quiet and she was busy. But when the, first, the, when the lady who sat down opened her laptop up, the other lady noticed the picture on the, on the screen and she said, oh, is that your daughter, little toddler? And she said, yeah, it's mine. She said, is that, is that your only one? She said, yeah, at the moment, but we're hoping to have more. And they didn't speak a little while longer. And then eventually the first lady who sat down said, do you have any children? She said, um, she said, I have, uh, she said, I have three, but only two, with, only two still here. And the woman said, I, I've heard that phrase before. I wondered, what is that? But I didn't want to press. And then a few minutes later, she said, I had an abortion. Um, this gets me every time. And uh, she said, she said something along the lines of, I got it, we got it on the credit card. We, I was busy in, in, in my business life, and uh, I was rising up the ranks, and I was more and more, and more authority, and uh, we didn't have time. And so we, we put it on, on the credit card, and it only, only missed two days of work for it. And, uh, and um, then she said, and four years later, me and my husband got divorced, and you know the life was, was, was taken up by by the competitive life that I was in. And uh, she, the lady said, she could see she was hurting. The lady said, I'm so sorry. And she said, no, I'm sorry. I deprived the world of, a, of, of, my, of my child, and I deprived myself of my child, and I can never forgive myself. And she said this. This is the, the part that I feel is connected. She said, not a day goes by, I don't think of the baby I aborted. Not a single day. But the world isn't designed for women to have babies, especially if women want to work. 
Abortion shouldn't be the answer. Our world should just be more supportive of mothers. See, I know, please don't hear what I'm not saying. Being a mother is not the only feminine trait. Not far from it, okay? I'm just making a point here. This is an example of the pressure put on women to compromise something of femininity because it's not upheld and honoured enough. We live at a time where one of the biggest songs of last year, and I'm sorry for getting this in your heads, pretty much shouts, look out, because here I come. And I'm marching on to the beat I drum. I'm not scared to be seen. I make no apologies. This is me. Now, that's a great sentiment for someone who's broken or for a, for a hurting mother. No, I'm proud of who I am. But doesn't it feel more and more like this is uh, us shouting at God? You don't get to tell me who I am. I make no apologies. This is me. I make my own rules. I make my own identity. And a loving and wise father looks on and weeps. When we trust God's ways and his design to stop fight, and we stop fighting it, we can live and flourish with clarity. There's a sad notion that to be feminine is weak or lesser. And so women are pressured to compete with men and being able to do whatever a man can do just as well as a man does it. Why? Why is that a thing? What are we saying about what it is to be a woman if the measurement is nothing to do with femininity? My dad was recently at a multi-faith conference in the Middle East where a Muslim lady stood in front of a room of hundreds of people and she said, I feel that in finding my masculine voice, I've lost my feminine voice. I think that's a pressure put on our culture more and more. Whereas this is God's heart. This is God's, God's heart. Listen to this in 1 Peter 3. Don't, don't, women, don't adorn yourself. Don't let, sorry, let, don't let your adorning be external the braiding of hair and the putting of gold jewellery or the clothing that you wear, but let your adorning be hidden, be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which in God's sight is very precious. Women, please know that being feminine is very precious in God's sight. And again, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying don't work. I'm not saying don't like or play sports. I'm not saying don't do DIY. I'm just saying please know that being a woman and being feminine is not weak. God delights in it and the world needs it. I don't think it's surprising that in in the very next chapter, in 1 Corinthians 12, uh, this is where Paul compares the church to a body that functions when different members are effective in their different roles. I remember when I was in South Africa uh, and I was on staff in a church and we went through this thing called Strength Finders. Have you heard of Strength Finders? Where you answer about 200 questions yourself on a a computer and uh, this algorithm works out uh, what your five best strengths are out of 34 strengths and helps you to understand what you should put your efforts into. And uh, the categories are influencer, strategist, and good executing, and the last one, relationship building. And four of my five top ones were in the relationship building one. And I was really annoyed. I was like, that's not manly. Come on. I want to be like 
influencer, strategist. But I'm the relationship building. And I was disappointed. I wanted to be in the other three categories. But Paul says we're like a body. And if we, the body works together by the different parts doing their different roles well. He says, uh, if I got it ready, yeah, here. He says this, for the body does not consist of one member, but of many members. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. And later on he goes on to say, if the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? So he's saying, look, if we're all the same thing, we, we, we actually lack. We're weaker for it. God created differences in gender so that we can be stronger and more beautiful. My number one on the Strength Finders was harmony. And I again was thinking, oh, come on. Isn't that basically just thinking everyone should get on together? That's not a strength. That's just kind of wanting to not have any, anybody get angry. Is that a strength? But actually I realized it means you love team where everyone is contributing and valued and able to fill their potential for a joint goal. And it occurred to me that, um, I'm going to see if the piano works here, that harmony is also a musical word. Oh, it's weird standing by the speaker. There we go. If we are wanting to be the C key, and everyone wants to be the C key, then our songs would be very boring. In Christ alone my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. doesn't work. But the C, it's, it's that I love harmony. I love harmony. I used to stand behind, next to my mum for years at church growing up. She sang, she sang harmony beautifully. And I love harmony. I love it in music. And uh, it's the harmony that brings the color, the vibrancy, and the beauty. I'm not very good at playing the piano, but I know a few keys. a few chords I should say it enhances and it helps one key is boring and very limited and jarring keys coming together not working together are painful and ugly (coughs) harmony is in all beautiful music from Mozart to the Beatles it brings life to the melodies. The melodies are boring on their own, but God has called us to work together to bring beauty. And it kind of occurred to me, I don't know if it's a great illustration, but the fact that it is called the C chord, even though it has the E and G keys in it as well, it might help us a little bit to see that the leader, or the head that Paul talks about, is a mode of authority that brings some sense of position and role, but it is not superior it, is, it wouldn't work without the E and G. It's not a chord without the other ones. It does, it's still called the C chord. And you might think, wait a second, E and G are in there. That's not fair to call it the C chord. It's just the name. It's okay. It wouldn't work without the other two. Okay, so sometimes we, we look at some of the things like headship he talks about in here. And we think that's, that undermines, that's surely talking about distinct uh, hierarchy. But actually, as we see in a moment, it's a beautiful thing. It doesn't mean that. It's crucial that we don't make the mistake that Paul premeditates and think that when he talks about differences in gender, he's talking in terms of superior and inferior. If you look in verse 11 and 12, he demonstrates the equality and profound interdependence 
and mutuality present in the male-female relationship. The difference is not one of value or essence, but one of role and contribution. Okay? Okay. The difference of gender is okay. It's one of role and of contribution, not one of essence or value. In Corinth, it seems some of the people in the church may have not been dressing appropriately. And Paul saw uh, it, it as not just a misunderstanding, but as a rebellion against God's design. We've talked about the principle and the heart of this important doctrine. But to help us think about what this might have looked like practically today, we could think of a man coming in with lipstick and high heels on and wanting to pray or prophesy. Or perhaps a woman with a shaved head and, and a muscle vest it's harder for me to think of what is a what is a you know stereotypical not that women all women wear high heels but what is it outright male outright feminine it's different with men lastly on this point it's important to say that especially with that last point we love transsexual people we love transgender people and we would welcome them into our our church with open arms But God's word requires that binary genders be acknowledged and upheld in the case of sharing something in a church meeting because it reflects coming under the authority of his design. So when we when we bring a ministry, when we bring a contribution, we are we are reflecting God in that moment. We are wanting to honour his design. The third principle under the strange symbols was uh, that clothing was to be modest. So we talked about um, Different roles and, uh, and different positions, uh, as it were, in, in those roles. And uh, the third thing is that clothing was to be modest. There's a probability that there were temple prostitutes at the time in the pagan temples who had shaved heads. So when Paul discourages women from having shaved heads in this setting, he's essentially saying it wouldn't be honouring of God or each other to come dressed like a prostitute. So again, we can take that, that principle and we say, well, that wouldn't be the same for us, but we understand what he's getting at here. And we can ask the question, do I think about what I wear in terms of serving the men and women at church? Am I aware that what I wear may be unhelpful to the opposite sex? Again, Andrew Wilson's very helpful here. He says this, in the UK today, women use their attire to uh, indicate femininity, honour for their husband's and sexual fidelity in different ways. So if my wife Rachel is praying or prophesying in a church meeting, she doesn't have to look like she's walked out of Pride and Prejudice, but she shouldn't look like she's walked out of Ibiza Uncovered. And for men in my world, looking like Bob Marley doesn't mean you're undermining God-given gender distinctives. Looking like Eddie Izzard, on the other hand, probably does. So in the church I'm part of, men can pray and prophesy if they're wearing a cap or a hat, but not if they're wearing lipstick or a dress. It's very quiet in here. So God is just saying there are, there are ways that you honour the design that I have made, and we honour the design that he's made because we trust it. You might be asking, what makes you so confident that the way women and men were defined in this passage wasn't just a reflection of an ancient misogynistic culture? And that would be a good question. And we're confident of that, that that's not the case because Paul grounds this teaching in nature, creation, and even the members of the Trinity. These are not cultural connections, but timeless and glorious ones. We follow a man who, being in very nature God, 
has a different role from the Father, but is by no means inferior. The relationship between Christ and the Father shows us that we're wrong to think that different roles mean there is also inferred superiority and inferiority. Confident, heartfelt obedience and adherence to another only comes from trust. So me and my wife, we, we, we ask our children to obey us, but we, we don't ask them to obey us uh, just with any attitude, but with a good attitude. It's easy to obey, well, it's not easy to obey, it's easier to obey through clenched teeth. Oh, I have to, fine, I will. It's a different animal altogether to, to, to obey willingly and with a good attitude. Where does that come from? It's only possible with a secure, trusting grounding of love. Trust in that sense only comes when you're convinced that the other person loves you and is more knowledgeable and wise than you. So this is where we finish. We finish with, do you trust him? Do you think he has your best interests at heart? Do you think he has the wisdom needed to bring you joy? If you're not sure if he can be trusted, if you're not sure if he has the wisdom, if you're not sure he wants to bring you joy and life, then there's a place you can look. I was talking to some of the leaders the other day, the life group leaders, and I was reminded of this story. It's a true story. I I can't remember if it was Alexander the Great or another leader, but he won a battle by getting some of his, his own men, his own soldiers, to stand on top of a cliff. And when he went to negotiate the battle, he said to the enemy leader, Just watch this. And he he signaled, and one or two of his men started to jump off to their deaths. And he looked at this other general as if to say, do you really think you stand a chance? If my men will just die at my flicking a finger, do you think you stand a chance? And and as I was thinking of this the other day, I was thinking, what a powerful leader that is. Isn't that incredible? I mean, it's terrifyingly horrendous, but it's incredible. But some of us maybe think God's like that. He just wants to take my life at the flick of a finger. But this is the thing that changes everything. This is what we've been singing about. Is that when we look up on our hill, we don't see God saying, right, you're going to die. We see our God dying up on the top of the hill for us. He's so far removed from that kind of God who just says, look, you will do what I say. Rather, he goes to the top of the hill and he is nailed to a cross, dying in our place to win the victory of our adoption into the family of God. So we're finished with looking at Philippians 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father." His love for you is so full. It's so complete. It's not lacking in anything. You can trust him. He has always got good for you. Father, we just want to come to you knowing our hearts are sometimes fearful of some of these things because of what we see around the world. 
what we've experienced, the people misrepresenting what they're supposed to be, and the damage that's caused. We just want to bring our hearts to you and ask you to, to help us to trust you, help us to trust your ways. But Lord, not just reluctantly, but to celebrate. To celebrate what it is to be a, 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 an image bearer of God. To celebrate what it is to, to, to be the beauty of harmony, bringing life and color, diversity. We, we want to celebrate what we're called to be. We want to do that loving you and worshiping you. So Lord, I really ask you to help us, particularly those in here who may find this very difficult. I just ask you, help them to be at least won over by this, this king on the cross. He says, I'm not a oppressive king. I lay my life down for my bride. I lay my life down so that, that she may live and be beautiful. We do worship you, Lord. We do trust you. We do love you. We pray, help us to be a, dis- a display of your wonder and your glory as a church and in this town. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Hope Church Ipswich. Please feel free to make a copy of this content, but please do not edit the content in any way.